0: Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, April twelfth, twenty eleven. See if we can try a normal program today. sip of my decaf, Folgers, Crystals, coffee, instant. They come in tea bags. It's kind of weird. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And so we sharpen our pencils, open our Bibles and go, okay, this person who is an author, a speaker, a Christian pastor, or whoever is saying this about God and let's see if that squares with God's word. Uh so many times that is not the case. In fact, if you uh if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, uh then you know that today I sent out a uh, a tweet or a Facebook status, actually it was both. Uh linking to a uh a recent blog post that I put up at letter of mark uh letterofmark M A R Q U E dot U S. Uh letter of Mark uh dot U S is my blog. And the name of the um the blog post is The Devil Is Is a Master of Scripture Twisting and, um, and, in fact, let me read this to you, because I, th- I think, you know, kicking this off is, is is actually a little bit better along the lines of what I'm thinking for today's monologue than anything. But uh, here's, a, it, a quoting Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, it says this, And he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil, he's adept at distorting scripture and using it for his own purposes. In this temptation of Jesus, Satan misquoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and craftily omitted a portion of that text in order to make it appear to be promising Jesus something that the text does not promise. Here's the passage in all of its parts with the portion that the devil omitted in bold. I'll have to find a way to highlight this. But uh, here's uh, the text, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you, this is the part he omitted, to guard you in all of your ways, and then the devil continued, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, in order to help us better understand the devil's gambit in this temptation, here is what one of well, what one Bible commentator wrote regarding Satan's use of Scripture on this occasion. The uh, Bible commentator, by the way, is uh, Paul Kretzman from his popular commentary. I read, he says, uh, The devil's temptation has, in reality, two objects here. Christ should demonstrate his divine sonship. He should, in this manner, gain a great number of disciples, probably the entire populace, at one bold stroke. The devil even quoted Scripture to accomplish his purpose, Psalm 91, 11, and 12, omitting, however, the very essential words to keep thee in all thy ways, which are practically a norm for the proper understanding of the entire passage. But Jesus was fully equal to the occasion. Without going into the matter of falsifying Scripture in his own interest, he tells the devil that there is a passage which reads, you shall not tempt the Lord your God that's Deuteronomy 6:16 6, Any attempt to reach the ground below by any means outside of those suggested by a correct understanding of nature's laws would be challenging would be a challenging of God's protective care for which there is no promise in the Bible Note in a similar way the devil is always attempting to make us presumptuous daring foolhardy without the promise And the command of God. It is the pride of our hearts which he intends to incite, together with the feeling that we are in no need of God's protective care. But the one effective way of meeting all of the attacks of the evil one and vanquishing him quickly and surely is to use the words of Scripture as weapons of defense and offense. Before these powerful onslaughts, the devil must give way and be routed completely. Now, this gospel passage has has faithfully served the church as a warning against agents of the evil one who skillfully twist and misinterpret the Bible, and is also a signpost that points us to the sixth and seventh petitions of the Lord's Prayer, which read, And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this in this petition that God would guard and keep us, so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. And the seventh petition: But deliver us from the from evil. What does this mean? We pray in this petition in summary that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions, and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, gives a, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. Amen and amen. Yeah, I, I thought that would be a good resource for you all, so I put that together today. Um. Yeah, the, the devil is a master... Scripture Twister. You can find that at letterofmark.us. And by the way, talking about the Letter of Mark. Um I yesterday I said that I would be announcing something regarding crew membership privileges. We've been working this reworking this and I have a, I have some help now here at uh at Pirate Christian Radio. As a result of it, um I may, we're able to accomplish a few things more that uh, we weren't able to accomplish in the past. And uh, and so the here's the announcement um what we're going to be doing for those of you who are members of the pirate crew i'm not going to i'm not going to resuscitate the cove uh in all of its glory it, that's that's going to be a little bit beyond um the bandwidth of what we're capable of producing here at at uh, pirate christian radio but what we are doing the, the help that i have is uh helping me to get out and uh, start basically a pirate christian publishing uh arm here and uh, and although the, the, you would think that the blogs and the and other things would be the the right fit we've decided that what we're going to be doing here is that if you are a member of the uh the the crew here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio what we're going to be doing is is that we're going to be uh, putting out and publishing uh ebooks you know basically pu- basically publishing ebooks uh they're going to be in e- epub kindle as well as pdf format and uh, at the time that each and every one of these is published uh you will uh you will be receiving an email from pirate christian radio all of our active crew members at the time when these uh things are published you'll be receiving an email uh, pointing you to where you can download, uh, you know, your copy of these books. And and the first one we're going to be uh, formally publishing is a, a small uh, book uh, uh, containing thirteen sermons uh, by Martin Luther on the Passion of Christ. And if you want to get a feel for what these uh, sermons are like, they are fantastic. They are absolutely ridiculously Christ-centered, cross-focused, and very, very insightful in in focusing us in on the on on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, his his sufferings, death, uh, and uh, burial, resurrection, all of that here in these sermons. And so, uh, what we're going to be doing is um, at the Letter of Mark blog, I'm going to be posting the sermons and keeping them up for a couple of days. You know, so today I posted Martin Luther's first sermon on the Passion of Christ in his discussion of uh, Jesus's Passion, his suffering in the Mount um, at the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter twenty-six, verses thirty-six to forty-six, and uh, these are these are sermons that uh, were you know they were published uh, you know literally more than a hundred and it's 150 160 years ago but uh you know the translation that we uh, what we've done is is we've taken these old translations of these uh these sermons of uh, Martin Luther that are in the public domain and I've reworked them we've we've edited them so we've updated a lot of the language and and made them a lot more readable and um this so what we're going to be doing here at the end of uh the month at the end of the month we're going to be releasing this book as an EPUB, Kindle edition, as well as a, as a PDF. For, and everybody who is an active member of the crew, uh, you will be receiving an email uh, from uh, Pirate Christian Radio showing you know, letting you know how you can download your copy of this. And then we have other books that we're working on and uh, we'll be publishing and trying to get these resources out. And so the idea then is, is that uh, those people who are not members of the crew, they will be able to purchase this EPUB uh, for nine ninety five. dollars so if you're not a member of the crew and you want to get you want to get a copy of this book, it'll be available for 9.95 and what we're going to like I said, we're we're going to make the sermons available for a couple of days on the the Letter of Mark blog and then after that they disappear and then and they'll reappear when we publish the book. So the idea then is this: is that uh, we we've got a whole bunch of uh, things that we have we're putting together, putting in the hopper that we're going to be publishing and making available. And everybody who's a crew member at the time when we release those books uh, will receive uh, you know, will receive a link to download and to enjoy those books at no additional cost. And if you're not a crew member and you would like to own a copy of of those particular titles, you can do so, and uh, we have an Amazon account that we're going to be selling those through. So that's my big announcement. Just wanted to let you know what's going on there. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. Uh, I got a quick kind of discernment snippet, if you would, uh, comparing what people say in the name of God to the Word of God, We uh, a discernment snippet that we're going to do from... Uh, uh, emergent village they they seem to have recently fired up their blog and uh they're beginning to uh the emergent village website is beginning to get back into uh you know putting stuff out there uh resources for the emergent uh postmodern liberal set and they've got a daily communique that they've uh, set up entitled min emergent and so i'm going to be responding to today's min emergent entitled myth as what if and um even though the uh the min emergent Website doesn't say this. I've spoken with enough emergents, have read so many emergent books that I know exactly what this is getting at. This is that uh, emergents they do embrace the idea of the Bible as being mythology, as as being mythology. Uh, but you know, th- but they say, "Oh, don't worry. That means that we're not saying that it's not true." And so I'm going to read this uh, quick quip from uh, a quote from Karen Armstrong uh, today. I post uh, at emergent village and just give you a quick biblical response. Um let's see here and then I've got a segment entitled this is your brain on postmodernity uh um George Ellerick uh one of the religion writers for the uh, Huffington Post has recently put up a video and basically claiming that Christians don't exist And so I've entitled the segment, This is Your Brain on Postmodernity. And those of you who uh, who grew up in the 80s and remember the commercials, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, I'll fill you in. And then uh, we've got a video segment of Patricia King and Joshua Mills supposedly talking about the power of the blood. Um, But the reason I say supposedly is because when you hear Patricia King and Joshua Mills discussing the so-called power of the blood um the uh, the funny thing is is that they're they don't seem to really be talking about the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins it, 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 they kind of bunny trail off into something completely different and then we're going to be reading a recent article uh, written by Albert Muller, who, by the way, is one of the featured spe- uh, speakers at uh, the Gospel Coalition Conference up there in Chicago this week. Um, in fact, I think, yeah, like I said, I think he's talking today, but uh, he's uh, recently written a, uh, an op-ed piece entitled The Only Game in Town, Richard Dawkins and the Limits of Reason. And We'll be talking about that. And then our sermon review today comes to us via South Hills Church, Corona, Ca- uh, California. Pastor Billy Is the one uh, preaching this one? This isn't Chris uh, a Chris Songson sermon, but the name of the sermon is "Louder Than Words," Part Six, and uh, you gotta hear it to believe it. Um, That's about all I can say. And uh, so, with that, we're gonna dive into the program proper. Now, I don't have any uh, for this little mini uh, discernment bite. I don't have. Any music to intro it? I'll have to think about that. It, you know, if this becomes a regular segment here at Fighting for the Faith, then I'll be truly seeking for, you know, quick discernment type music. And I'm not sure what that's going to be. But anyway, from the uh, from the Emergent Village uh, website, which has recently come out, uh, you know, bared their fangs officially. Um, but the name of it is "myth as what if," and uh, this this is one of those things where they're always trying to deconstruct the Bible and find a way of undermining the Bible's authority. And so, if you ha- ever had any conversations with so-called postmodern Christians or emergent, uh, uh, you know, e- emergent Christians. Um, this is what they call themselves. Um, then you'll know that they readily say, "Oh yeah, well we believe the Bible is 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 mythology." But th- don't don't worry, don't worry though. That does we're not saying it's not true. We're just saying that 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 myth is is kind of truth beyond truth. And to give you an example of what they're talking about here, here's a a, a quote from Karen Armstrong that says this: "It is a mistake to regard myth as an inferior mode of thought." And you go, "Oh okay." which can be cast aside when human beings have attained the age of reason. Mythology is not an early attempt at history and does not claim that its tales are objective. Like a novel, an opera, or a ballet, myth is make-believe. It's a game that transfigures our fragmented, tragic world and helps us to glimpse new possibilities by asking, what if? A question which has provoked some of our most important discoveries in philosophy, science, and technology, so when you hear by the way uh, when you hear an emergent talking about the Bible as myth, they're not saying that it's not true instead they they're they're readily saying that it's not history that's objective, but instead it's it's something that's make believe that helps us answer the question What if so that apparently this applies to the Bible. To that, I would simply point you to a, a couple of passages, and if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'll begin in uh, in Peter's epistle, Second uh, Peter, chapter one, starting at verse sixteen. I read the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, spent three years traipsing around the Galilean countryside with um Or the Judean countryside with Jesus Christ, who, well, claimed to be God in human flesh. And here's what he said. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Mount of Transfiguration event. Uh, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, more sure than that. Listen to this. We have something more sure. So the Apostle Peter, eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, spent three years traipsing about the Judean countryside with Jesus. He makes a point of letting the people he wrote this letter to know that they did not follow cleverly devised myths. Instead, um, he was an eyewitness to the events that he continued to tell people about. And, by the way, the other part of it is is that uh, myths don't usually contain language like this. If you have your Bible... Flip on over to Luke chapter 2 and get ready to flip on over to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read the opening verses to Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3. Now, if you want to know how mythology starts, it usually starts along the lines of something that you, you know, we've all seen the Star Wars movies. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, myth is somewhere off there in obscure. We don't know when it happened. Once upon a time. Yet uh, Luke, uh, the evangelist, writes, says in those days, this is Luke chapter two, verse one, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Yeah, normally myth doesn't really nail history down to this type of objective thing. But also we got Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Here's uh, what, again, Luke the Evangelist writes. See if this sounds like deep myth to you. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when you hear emergents and liberals talking about the Bible as myth, say to yourselves, that's not what the Scripture says of itself. None of the stories in Scripture are ever presented as myth. Always history. Always objective historiographical information that can be tested using the the science techniques of historians tis true tis true tis true all right um moving along here okay do y'all remember um well here's the sad part man i'm showing how old i am back in the 80s when i was a young lad um <laughs> there was a uh, when i was skinny good looking um healthy um you know 30 inch waist washboard abs you know things like that um there was a, a commercial during the 80s that was an anti-drug commercial. Let me, let me play it for you. I found it on YouTube. YouTube seems to be the graveyard of forgotten things like this. Uh, but see if you all remember anything to this effect. Here we go. Okay, last time. This is drugs.
1: This is your brain on drugs.
0: Now, by the way, that was oil in a frying pan, and then the egg came down into the frying pan and is now frying. Yeah, that's what's going on here.
2: Any questions?
0: Nope. No, I, I have no questions. I, yeah, but I, I truly remember that. Very, very famous commercial. And so I've come up with my own version of this in honor of uh, George Ellerich's, uh, well, most recent video that he posted on the Internet. And so uh, here, let's see if I can do this here. This is your brain. This is your brain on post-modernity. Any questions? Now, if you don't know what I'm referring to, uh, well, uh, <clears throat> here I'll let George Ellerick explain. Apparently, Christians don't exist.
3: Well, I mean, I think for me, where I'm at right now is is that Christians don't exist. I mean, it's it's and 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 I'm coming from this premise that Paul goes into this categorical diatribe where he says there's neither Jew, there's neither Greek, there's neither male, there's neither female. Um, and There's a purpose to it because it actually ends in him saying that Christ is all and is in all. He's actually challenging not only his day and age, he's challenging our day and age where we say this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Christ. Paul is actually subverting that whole ideology by saying, actually, Christ embodies everybody. Christ embodies the whole of humanity. Well, in terms of the orthodox, traditional response to a... Sub- yeah, I'll catch
0: in any of this. I,
3: yeah. ...experience where someone actually kneels down and says, oh, God, please forgive me, you know, accept me, and, you know, Jesus come into my life and change me. What it assumes is that is that Christ is still out there, whereas Christ himself even once said that the kingdom of God is within, it's inside, it's near. So it's us learning how to live out that Christ ethic.
0: This is your brain on postmodernity. Any questions? Yeah, I didn't think so, because those weren't even coherent sentences. Not sure if they were even real thoughts, you know, kind of like the lines of, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. There were nouns, verbs, adjective adverbs, and none of it made any sense at all. This is what happens. This is why friends don't let friends go postmodern. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church.
4: Welcome to Build-A-God, how can I help you? Hello, I received a -A Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway, so she has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming. And sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes. My goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent. Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their God!
0: more of your money in your pocket hi Chris Roseboro here if you're planning to travel anytime in the near future then don't pay more for airfare hotel rooms or rental cars than you need to Longtime pirate Christian radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs plus Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional ten dollars off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, post modernity is a very lethal form of irrational philosophy that is not compatible with biblical Christianity. Just a reminder Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, and partnering with us in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, well, um, here we go. This music can mean only one thing. Time for an update from the Patricia King gang. It's a two for today. You got Patricia King and Joshua Mills. Now, the name of this particular video that was recently posted at the XP Media website is entitled The Power of the Blood. Now, call me old school. Call me Chris, if you like, um... Uh, call me an angry old, uh, white Western, uh, male, um, you know, whatever you want to call me. It doesn't matter. Um, just don't call me late for dinner uh, cause I, you know, I like to eat. But anyway, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the name of this particular thing, the power of the blood where I come from in the times that I've grown up and in the churches I've attended, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, or talk about there being power in the blood of Christ, the first thing that comes to mind are the biblical passages that talk about how we were redeemed by the blood of Christ, purchased from sin, death, and the devil, that the blood of Christ is what God uses to forgive our sins. Through the blood of Christ, we are justified. God's wrath against us is propitiated. You know, th- those are the things that come to mind biblically when I think about the term, the blood, uh, you know, the blood. OK, we're talking about just not any old blood, but the blood of Jesus. <laughs> well, thanks to uh, Patricia King and Joshua Mills. Well, apparently um, all of that is lost on them. And instead, we've got a well, something completely different here. Listen in.
2: Okay. And on today's program, we have a special guest, Joshua Mills from New Wine International. And we're going to be talking about the power of the blood of Christ and specifically a blood sign that God gave you.
0: Boy, that didn't take long, did it? We're going to talk about the the power of the blood of Christ and more specifically a blood sign that apparently God gave to Joshua Mills. So yeah, don't don't no no don't look at the cross, don't look at the shed blood of Christ, his sufferings for your sins. No, <laughs> no, God has given a blood sign to Joshua Mills.
2: Um, right. A little while ago, that has a significant message for the body of Christ behind it.
1: It was absolutely outstanding uh, when this happened. We were down in New Zealand, and just previous to me going down to New Zealand, um, I'd been actually out at Miracle Valley, A. a. Allen's old campground and miracle site a revival. And uh, while I was there, I had an encounter in the glory where the, where I, I knew that I would see a blood sign. I didn't know where it would come. I didn't know what it would look like. But I knew that a blood sign was coming.
0: Yeah, not the one that already came, you know, on the cross, the shed blood of Christ. And from there, we went down to New Zealand.
1: When we were in New Zealand, uh, we had a wonderful conference. We went to do the Sunday morning church on my way to the airport. You know, one of those
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: very quick little services you'll do. And then you go into the airport. And during that Sunday morning meeting, I was ministering out of Luke 17, and as I was sharing, uh, there was just a spontaneous praise that began to rise up in the people. They just began to sing in tongues and, and just sing hallelujah, and just this spontaneous worship began to rise, and I could sense a healing anointing that began moving into the, the meeting. And as that began to happen, I, I went and I was laying hands on different ones, and then I just began to lift up my hand just in worship. Unto the Lord, and as I lifted my hand in worship, here there was a, a a blood that dropped, literally just dropped in from the atmosphere into the palm of my hand.
0: No way, really? Joshua Mills, who's known for parlor tricks, you know, basically uh, he heads off to. I'm, I, this is my theory that uh, he, you know, he alleges that these are signs from God. I, I think he stops by the Michaels. Uh, craft stores and basically performs parlor tricks and then tells everybody, Look, blood just miraculously dropped out of the sky and into my hand. It's kind of apparently his version of the stigmata.
1: Lord and as I lifted my hand in worship here there was a, a a blood that dropped literally just dropped in from the atmosphere into the palm of my hand. Did you feel it, land? Uh, I did not feel it land, but I could feel a warm uh blood sensation just like a warm liquid wow. sensation in my hand.
0: And when I Right. Yeah, you believe this. I've got some beachfront property I would like to sell you. Um, you know, it's 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 a beautiful beautiful uh, flat uh overlooking the Pacific Ocean and it's located literally in the state of Utah. I mean uh, uh it right in the um, the southeast corner of Utah. Beautiful beautiful beach pro- property I'd like to sell you there. <sighs> Sphere into the palm of my
1: hand.
2: Did you feel it land?
1: Uh, I did not feel it land, but I could feel a warm uh, blood sensation, just like a warm liquid wow. sensation in my hand. And when I looked at my hand, I, I began saying, oh, it's the blood sign, it's the blood sign. I knew it was coming. I didn't know what it would look the like. The Lord had
2: actually told you ahead of time,
1: right. prophetically. In this encounter in the glory. He was, right. he was
2: preparing you right. for this.
1: He was preparing me for wow. it. But when it happened, it was it was absolutely amazing, just outstanding, and just the sense of the holiness
0: of God dropped into the room, and when that happened... And this is supposedly a sign for the entire church. Yeah, I think it's a sign that he's a false prophet and a liar. I went to, to show the pastors at, at, uh, in the front rows,
1: and as I went to show them, one of wow. the elders' wives began dripping oil from her hands at the same moment. Wow. now that's interesting because in Leviticus it speaks about the cleansing from disease, that that it's blood and oil that, that bring the cleansing right. from the the disease.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so it was amazing that God dropped the blood and the oil into the place. I believe that God was giving a revelation about the connection between his blood and the glory right. of really, God. yeah. And especially
2: as it related to healing. Right, exactly. Yeah.
0: And, and, so- and, and I think it was a complete parlor trick on your part in that you're deceiving these people. So as this uh, began
1: to happen, just within a, just a short amount of time, I don't know exactly how much, but just within a short amount of time, it changed from just a, a, a uh, liquid blood into a crimson-colored glory dust.
0: No. Crimson-colored glory dust? You don't say. <sighs> Man, unbelievable. I can't. just frustrates me that anybody listens to these people and takes them seriously.
1: a short amount of time. I don't know exactly how much, but just within a short amount of time, it changed from just a a, a, uh, liquid blood into a crimson colored glory dust. And so God was showing the connection between His blood
2: and and His glory. Oh, I love that. And then you also mentioned that there were... um, uh, salvations that morning too. There were
1: so many salvations that began to happen. Um, even one man who had been resisting coming to church with his wife. His wife brought salvations from what him that morning. I guess he had said that was the if he came, then she wouldn't ask him again. When he got into that place, I mean, he wow. just began weeping like a little baby. Ran to the front. Why? Why was he weeping? Uh, to the altars and gave his heart to the Lord. And there were so many testimonies like that of people getting saved are rededicating
0: their life to Christ. Oh. For what reason? Because crimson-colored glory dust fell into your hand? Because, because of the sign and wonder of
1: Christ's blood. And that is the power
2: yeah. of the blood. Joshua, we have um, today, um, I'm featuring here right now, a DVD with your teaching on the blood sign. You came into one of our... Con-
0: Uh-oh, it's a commercial.
2: ...conferences and taught one of the most powerful messages... On the right. blood of Christ, and it's like it's so anointed, and I, I, I really love this particular DVD, and also we're going to talk about generally signs in this next um, few few minutes. Sure. But this DVD, it's it is two DVDs of His glory, and again, it was when you were with us. At a conference,
1: right? Um, right. One
2: night, it was like sapphire glitter fell everywhere. It was just amazing, and um, just spectacular. And even up in the in the speaker,
0: sapphire glitter.
2: His room after, in the green room, was falling again. Fresh, in fact, a man who who was Jewish but not born again yet got saved as a result of that sign.
0: You know, the words of our Lord uh, come to uh, mind here. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, speaking of the end times, Jesus said, For false Christs, that would be false messiahs, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Or we could uh, tack into this the uh, prophecy given by the Apostle Paul in Second. Thessalonians uh, chapter um, well two, verse seven, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until uh, until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Man, unbelievable. Yeah, so there you go. A a video supposedly all about the power of the blood. But no, no, we're not talking about the power of the blood. We're talking about the power of parlor tricks, crimson glory dust, and things like that. Not the true blood of Christ shed for you on the cross, yeah, and by the way, the miracle that support supports that blood that was shed is Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Think about it. From the uh, Christian Post, new op-ed piece by Albert Muller entitled The Only Game in Town? Richard Dawkins and the Limits of Reason. Albert Muller writes, he says, "'Evolution by natural selection is the only game in town. The greatest show on Earth,' asserts Richard Dawkins. We've come to expect claims like this from Richard Dawkins, perhaps the most famous defender of Darwinian evolution alive today. Unlike many intellectuals, Dawkins manages to stay singularly focused and on message. He is the planet's foremost evangelist for evolution.' And he is absolutely certain that the evolutionary worldview is indeed the only game in town. He is clearly frustrated that so many dwellers of the earth refuse to accept his message. You know, it's funny, uh, Carl Giberson from the Biologos Foundation, he's equally as frustrated, especially among evangelicals. Anyway, in The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution, Dawkins sets out to present his most compelling case for evolution. He is, make no mistake, an ardent enthusiast for his argument. Seldom do we read a book written with such fervor and certitude, with an amazing amount of condescension and anger added to the mix as well. Quote, Evolution is a fact, he asserts, beyond reasonable doubt, beyond serious doubt, beyond sane, informed, intelligent doubt. Uh, Beyond doubt, evolution is a fact. The evidence for evolution is at least as strong as the evidence for the Holocaust, even allowing for eyewitnesses to the Holocaust. That's a direct quote. Note that this means, by obvious implication, that all objections to evolution are insane, unintelligent, and uninformed. Read his words carefully. Richard Dawkins is so bold as to assert that anyone who disagrees with him on such a controversial issue is insane, unintelligent, and uninformed because any sane, intelligent, and informed person would have to agree with him. He minces no words, quotes, It is as plain a truth that we are cousins of chimpanzees, somewhat more distant cousins of monkeys, more distant cousins still of aardvarks and manatees, yet more distant cousins of bananas and turnips. Continue the list as long as desired. Bananas and turnips? (laughs) Welcome to his honest presentation of evolution and its implications as a theory. What makes Richard Dawkins so fascinating is his delight in detailing these implications. This Oxford University professor is an unabashed celebrant of of the evolutionary worldview, and he shrinks back from none of its dimensions. Pain and suffering have long presented excruciatingly difficult questions for serious minds, not for Dawkins, those whose most famous book on evolution is entitled The Selfish Gene because evil and suffering don't count for anything one way or the other is the calculus of gene survival. Dawkins sees grandeur in evolution and even in the suffering that accompanies the struggle for the replication of genes. Yes, he writes, there is a grandeur in this view of life and even a kind of grandeur in nature's serene indifference to the suffering that inexorably follows in the wake of its guiding principle, survival of the fittest. Furthermore, quote, if animals aren't suffering, something isn't working hard enough in the business of gene survival. Note that human beings are animals, and in this evolutionary sense as well, along with our cousins, the chimpanzees, monkeys, aardvarks, and manatees, suffering, we are told, simply doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. This is a macabre macabre grandeur, to be sure." What frustrates Dawkins to no end is the fact that so many modern people reject evolution as a fact and as a worldview. Quote, the evidence for evolution grows by the day and has never been stronger, he argues. Quote, at the same time, paradoxically ill-informed opposition is also stronger than I can remember. He cites the fact that no less than 40% of Americans deny that human beings evolved from lower animals and instead believe in the creation of the cosmos in general and of human beings in particular by God the percentage of people who believe in the kind of naturalistic evolution Dawkins presents is truly small among the general public, and this is driving Dawkins to distraction. This is where his argument becomes really interesting and quite extreme. Remember that Dawkins had claimed that the evidence for evolution is, quote, as least as strong as the evidence for the Holocaust, even allowing for eyewitnesses to the Holocaust? That absolutely remarkable statement claiming that all the ir, ir, uh, in, <clears throat> inferential reasoning behind the theory of evolution exceeds even the eyewitness confirmation of the Holocaust is truly shocking. This is hardly the kind of statement we would expect for someone who stands in such privileged place with the academic community. But Richard Dawkins is not really writing in his capacity as a scientist. He's writing as an evangelist for evolution. But there is another angle to this as well. The public relations strategy Dawkins employs here. ...is a a rhetorical slander. He means to isolate those who deny evolution as morally and intellectually equivalent to Holocaust deniers, a very loaded and incendiary argument. Quote, "...I shall be using the term history deniers for those who deny evolution," he announces. Years ago, Richard Dawkins explained that evolution allowed him to become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. He later became one of the world's most famous and influential atheists. In this book, we can easily see why these two arguments are melded in, uh, into one in his mind and thought. The Greatest Show on Earth has just been released in a German edition in which it is it retitled The Creation Lie, Why Darwin is Right. Dawkins told Der Spiegel that he has complained of the fact that the German title is negative, but he acknowledges the negative side of his argument. Quote, but there is the negative side as well, and it is an attempt to disabuse people, especially in America and also in other parts of the world who have become influenced by fundamentalist religion into, re-think- into thinking that life can be and should be explained as all designed. I regard that as lazy and unhelpful an explanation as well as an untrue one. His interviewer asked, quote, "'Aren't you afraid that some of these people might be alienated by the sometimes strong language in the book? You can call your opponents Holocaust deniers, ignorant, ridiculous, and deluded to the point of perversity.' Dawkins answered, "'My suspicion is that more people will find it amusing. "'If I read an author who is ridiculing some idiot, "'I myself am rather amused. "'There may be some who will be turned off "'and I will have lost them in those passages, "'but I suspect they'll be outnumbered "'by those who are amused.' "'This is the only part of Dawkins' argument "'that rings false. "'No one reading The Greatest Show on Earth "'will ever come away thinking Dawkins "'meant to be amusing in any conceivable manner.' He is deadly serious, and he never backs off from his argument in any sense. He really believes, or at least really claims, that those who disagree with him are insane, deluded, intellectually perverse, and unintelligent. Dawkins claims to be driven only by reason and reality in his worldview, but the actual arguments he makes show only the limits of autonomous reason when it comes to understanding ultimate reality. Let his stridency sink in along with the sterile and empty grandeur Dawkins sees in evolution. Then take full account of the fact that if atheism is true, Dawkins' evolutionary worldview is the only game in town. Wowzer? (laughs) Great point, great article, Dr. Muller. You know, I'm trying to, uh, I'm actually in the process of uh, trying to get... um, Dr. Ham, Dr. Ken Ham, onto uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith to—I want to uh, I interview him regarding uh, Carl Giberson's latest post that was put up at the CNN uh, religion blog, where he he makes a claim—Carl Giberson actually makes the claim that if Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist. Uh, you know, and when you read stuff like that, I mean— you should reject it out of hand if I mean if somebody says if Jesus were alive today, he would be a capitalist. If Jesus were alive today, he would be a Marxist. if Jesus were alive today, he would be uh, he would play baseball for the Yankees I mean when you, when you hear arguments like that that's not a, that's not actually a biblical argument that's not a biblical argument. The fact is this: the historical Jesus was not an evolutionist, the historical Jesus was a creationist and The historical Jesus believed in and assumed that the creation stories in Genesis were historically true. He believed in a historical Adam and Eve. He believed in a historical Cain and Abel event where Cain slaughtered his brother Abel. He believed in the literal flood. He believed that Jonah was really, truly in the belly of a fish for, th- for three days. I mean, these are all—he believed that the children of Israel crossed over on dry land across the Red Sea. Yeah, all of these things, those are the things the liberals say can't possibly have taken place because they don't believe miracles are possible. Um, Jesus actually believed all of that. So when somebody makes the claim that if Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist, that's not an argument. That's just pure hijacking of Jesus. That's taking Jesus and you know in, in in basically grabbing some duct tape and some chains and some rope and going and grabbing Jesus, putting the duct tape around his mouth, hog-tying him and throwing him into the back of the bus on your cause. And basically basically saying, "We got Jesus. See, we 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 hijacked him and see if Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist." Like I said, the fact is that the historical Jesus Believed in the creation. Believed that God created man, male and female. And um, since he was actually God in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead on the third day, it is beyond Presumptuous. It is beyond preposterous. It is beyond credulity to make a claim that, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, that if he were alive today, he would be an evolutionist. That's absurd because Jesus is the God who spoke the world into existence. Jesus is the God who created the universe in six days by saying, let there be light, let the earth produce plants and vegetation, let us make man in our image. This is the God who was hanging dead and crucified on the cross for your sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. So when Today's so-called progressive Christians claim that if Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist. You basically say, I'm sorry. Jesus is God in human flesh, and he wasn't an evolutionist. He was a creationist because he's the God who created us. Anyway, I, I digress. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review coming up. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
4: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had
3: enough!
0: Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Sermon review time. Just before we get into the sermon, I want to read a section from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to you. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. i want to point something out. It'll give us the proper way of, well, critiquing what's missing in the sermon or what's wrong with it. All right, here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from South Hills Church, Corona, California. Pastor Billy presiding. The name of the sermon, Louder Than Words, Part 6. Now, if you have your Bible, like I asked you, Um, flip on over to 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 let me start reading to you I want to point something out I'll have the music on in the background for we therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. Now, as you begin to listen to the sermon from South Hills, louder than words, ask yourself this question. Is Pastor Billy preaching himself or themselves? Are they preaching themselves? Or are they preaching Christ? That's going to be the measure that the sermon will either stand up to or fall to. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Billy, Louder Than Words, part six. Here we go.
5: How's everybody doing? Are you happy to be in church today? Yes. Hey, I want to welcome you. My name is Pastor Billy. I want to welcome those of you that are watching on our online campus, Thanks for being here. Thanks for connecting with us. Matter of fact, I mean, we're doing great things with the online campus. People continue to invite their friends. As a matter of fact, you can do that online, invite your friends just by clicking the icons below, Twitter, Facebook, really cool, connect with people. But we are reaching great people. We're reaching a lot of people in our online campus. We have been in this series called Louder Than Words, and today we are concluding. We've been learning that God has given us dreams. If you were here during the Dream Again series, you realize that God has given us dreams, and we all... Okay, now,
0: if you, uh, those of you who think back uh, here, uh, fighting for the faith, I reviewed a couple of sermons in the Dream Again sermon series, and they were complete abominations and biblical train wrecks. Now they're building on that faulty foundation of sand, and uh, this sermon that you're going to hear is part of building on that that Dream Again sermon series. Who are they preaching, themselves or Christ?
5: We wrote our dreams down on these pieces of paper. But we realize through statistics that very few of us will actually see our dreams become a reality. So what do we need to do to close the gap between what we say we want to do and what we say God's called us to do? What
0: do we need to do to close the gap so that we can achieve our dreams? Hmm. Are we preaching ourselves or are we preaching Christ?
5: and actually doing it. So we've been learning through Hebrews chapter 11, all these different heroes of the faith and uh, Noah and Moses and all these different people. And we've been hearing from some of the South Hills heroes. And today we're going to hear from another one. His name is Jason Lowther. Would you welcome him as he comes this morning? Here comes a South Hills hero.
0: Everyone give him the proper glory that he's deserved for being a South Hills hero. Are we preaching ourselves or Christ?
5: Come on. Come on in. So, Jason, why don't you start uh, this? Tip, just tell us a little bit about your story, uh, where this whole thing came about. Okay. About nine years ago,
6: um, uh, my dad had a heart attack and a stroke. And I remember the, sitting there by his bedside and the doctor coming in saying, you know, we don't know if you're going to make it. Mm. Um, and at that point, um, I was just overwhelmed and holding my dad's hand, and we we're both crying, and him telling me what what a great son I've turned into to be, and a great husband, and um, a godly man, and uh, how he wanted me to take care of my mom if he didn't make it. Mm. What a great moment. Yeah, yeah, great. walking out of there, walking out of there, I'm thinking, geez, I wish I could just capture... Those words yeah. on CD to keep forever.
5: So what was the dream then? What was it that God gave you? What, what do you? what is the dream that you have?
6: God gave me a vision. He gave me a vision. Are we listening to Patricia King here? To, to help people record, prepare and record a message to leave to their loved ones. Hmm. So that they have on CD after they have passed. Wow, that's...
0: Do we need a crucified and risen Savior for that? Do people uh, repent and, uh, and of their sins and receive the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross? Are we preaching ourselves, or are we preaching Christ?
5: You know, you, you were telling me about when you, when you thought this thing out, um, because that's an amazing uh, idea. You told me, you know, a, a lot of us prepare financially uh, for the end. Right. Yeah.
6: Exactly. You know, we, we all want to prepare uh, financially, get our financials in order before we pass. But you know, I think we're missing the big, the big, the big picture, and that's the emotional insurance. That's more important mm. than any material.
0: Yeah. Don't you think the bigger picture is? Um, you know, since we're talking about death, is you know, eternity, either in heaven or hell. You know, forgiveness of sins.
6: Thing out there, you know.
5: It's, yeah. You know, and, and as a pastor, when you do these funerals a lot of times, you could tell uh, that there's a disconnect at times. You know, there are, there are uh, some unfinished business. You know, you see people thinking, you know, M- did my mom really love me? Did my dad really care for me? And what a great service to be able to, to kind of capture that. You know, there are, there are uh, a lot of things that we have to do, you know, uh, steps we have to take. And a lot of them are, you know, courageous acts. What was one of the or some of the biggest steps courageously that you had to take? First, I, I had to make sure my vision was
6: clear, and I did that through prayer. And mm. um, you know, starting a service like this obviously it takes a lot of time and a lot, a lot of money. You know, and so I, I had to write, you know, checks when, when really, you know, in faith, mm. really, to build this and op- be able to offer this service to others.
5: It's tough. Yeah, I, I mean, putting this, putting this dream into reality. There's things we have to do. There are people in this audience. I know that uh, God has given them dreams. And what advice would you give them? What would you say? I mean, kind of spill some knowledge on us and just say, this is what I would do. This is something that if you want to see your dream become a reality, uh, give us some advice. The first thing that, that I would
6: do is pray. Pray about it and and uh, know that there's never a right time to do to fulfill your dreams. You have to make time and do it. Ooh, that's good. And And, you know, fear and faith cannot go in the same sentence. And surround yourself around uh, people that are going to help feel your dream. Feel it, you know, and, and, and help you push forward.
5: That's great. Well, uh, we as a family um, want to support you and all that you're doing. Uh, we love when people at South Hills just launch out in the dreams that God's given them. So we as a family want to pray for you and uh, the pray that God would just continue this uh, this vision and this service. If you want to agree with us, if you just want to stretch out your hand towards Jason, just kind of as a sign of agreement as I pray, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us dreams. God, thank you for trusting us with dreams.
0: Uh, Who is he preaching about again? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, thank you, God, for dreams. Well, but thanks for trusting us with dreams. Everyone, hold your hand out to him, like we're gonna, you know, collectively send power his way.
5: <sighs> and God, I pray that we would be people like Jason that launch out in the dreams that you've called us to do. I pray today, God, that uh, you would help us to realize that uh, sometimes. Acts of uh, faith, acts of courage. Just uh, we can't, like he said. There's never a great time. We just got to make time. So I pray that you would continue to uh, help him as as he steps forward in this. In Jesus name, Amen. Hey, his uh, he's got more uh, information outside regarding unspoken words. If you'd like to talk to him outside, you can. But let's thank Jason one more time for being here this morning. Come on, thanks, brother. Great job. Yes. Well, we have been in this series uh, entitled Louder Than Words. And as a matter of fact, everybody got a program. And inside that program, you have an outline. If you want to grab that right now. Uh, you know, And as I thought about this, this series, you know, I think a lot about my life and some of the things.
0: Yeah, you think about your life. Yeah. Boy, I can't wait to hear more about your life. Yeah, your life. Remember that passage I read at the beginning of the sermon? Um. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants. Um, who who is Pastor Billy preaching about? Yeah, cause he yeah he he's thinking about. Oh, that's right, his life. Hmm. Did Pastor Billy uh, live a sinless life for you? Did Pastor Billy die on the cross for your sins? Was his shed blood? Um, was his blood shed so that God's wrath would be propitiated? Is the story of the Bible about Pastor Billy? You
5: know, these are just important questions, you know. That, ...that I had to go through. Um, when, I, when I was 15 years old, uh, I was learning how to drive. I mean, how many people ever, you know, know what I'm talking about and learn how to drive? Yeah, a few of us, thanks.
0: Um, nobody. Yeah, I learned how to drive, and it really wasn't a religious experience for me, although I was pretty happy on the day that I passed the test and got my driver's license. I don't know, I was 16 years old, yeah.
5: Nobody drives in the city. Uh, yeah, great. We all we got to learn how to drive, right? And so I, unfortunately, I was going to school on a Saturday. Now you automatically think that because I had to go to school on a Saturday that I was a bad kid. Okay, it, it's worse. Um, I had to go to school on Saturday because I was in marching band. And so we were
0: preparing for... So what? Why are you preaching yourself and not Christ?
5: A, a, a parade. And so I had to go to school on a Saturday. So I was going to drive. And I said, Mom, let me, let me drive. Dad, let me drive. And my, my parents wanted to take me and teach me how to drive. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat. I'm driving, and my mom's sitting back in the day when there was a bench. You know, she's sitting in the middle. And then my dad's sitting in the passenger seat, shouting orders the whole time, you know. And it's like, do this, do that. And I'm driving. And we used to live at the very top of Corona, uh, way up the top where Foothill is, or uh, where Foothill was, actually, it's up by Cleveland, all those areas. We used to live way up there, and there were no roads, none. I mean, the roads that were there were dirt. There was like one paved road. And so I'm driving on this one paved road, and out of nowhere, a deer jumps out in front of the car. As I'm learning how to drive, I don't know what to do. So I hit the deer. Yeah, I I can still vividly remember the look on that deer's face when its head hit the, the hood. I mean, it was like it looked at me like, why did you hit me? I mean, I felt so bad. I didn't know what to do. I'm still driving. i am still got my foot on the gas. And my dad's like, Billy, step on the brake. So I finally stopped the car and we had to get out and we had to kind of like pull the deer out of the front of the car. It was bad. It was, it was horrible. But see, that was the day that I learned that driving is risky. I was about 18 years old. So glad you
0: learned that lesson. Yeah, I'm sure now that you know that driving is risky, that that
5: has drawn you closer to God. And I was working at a company and I I saw this hot, amazing woman. Her name was Annie. She's now my wife. She's still hot and amazing. Um, But I met her, you know, and and I wanted to date her. I started dating her, but I mean, it was going fast. I mean, we were only dating two weeks and I was ready for the big L word, lunch. No, I'm kidding. And so I wanted to tell her, you know, and it's like, how am I going to do that? And I was trying to be cool about it. And we were at my parents' house and I was doing laundry and stuff. And she was walking around with me and I was, I went down, we were we were in the laundry room and I leaned up. I remember it like, like in my head, vividly remember it. I'm leaning up against the, the, the washing machine. And I looked at her, I thought, be cool, man. Be cool. And I looked at her, and I said, you know what? I got to tell you something. I think I'm falling in love with you. And she looked me square in the eyes and said, Get over it. <laughs> You're too young. We don't know each I mean, it was like that was the day that I realized that love is risky. I mean, me and my family, we love to go on vacations. My son, who Aaron, who's 21 now, he was three years old, and we went to Havasu, and everybody wanted to ski, and we were skiing. We were on the boats, but he kept telling me, I want to fish, Daddy. I want to fish. I want to fish. And so we went off to an area where we were fishing, and I set up his pole, and I set up my pole, and we put our pole in. He got bored with it after a couple of minutes because that's what fishing does. And so we're standing there, and we're fishing. But behind me, very quietly, I keep hearing him say, I'm Peter Pan. I'm Peter Pan. I'm Peter Pan. And I'm like, what is he doing? And I, I look behind me, and he found inside the tackle box the filleting knife that was inside of a leather sleeve, and it looked like a Peter Pan knife. And he took that, that knife and the sleeve, and he put it down inside of his shorts. And he kept pulling it out, going, I'm Peter Pan. We put it back in, but one day, one, one, one moment when he pulled that knife out, his hand was out on top of that leather sleeve, and he ripped it out, and he screamed, ripped his hand open. I mean, we finally got it fixed, got him to the doctor, freaked us out, but that was the day that I realized fishing with your son is risky. <laughs> My parents... You know, they were the, they were the pillars of, of relationship. They're the, the pillars of marriage. If you want to know how to have a relationship, you look at your parents. They're just these, these amazing married people. And after 33 years of marriage, decided to get a divorce. That was the day that I realized that being a part of a family is risky. Married, had two little ones. Trying to survive, I got a, had a job at a construction company. And the week of Christmas, I got laid off. So I got another job. I was, I was working for a, an office equipment company. I was selling office equipment. And the week before Christmas, I got laid off. The next year, I thought, I'm going to get a secure company. I, mean, I went and worked for IBM. And I worked for them for a full year, in the month of Christmas, I got laid off. I went and I thought, this, come on, this what is going on? God, come on. I went and found a job in the medical industry, I was selling medical supplies, and just before Christmas got laid off. That's when I realized working for a company is risky. Time after time, we have to realize. That living life is risky. The other day, I went out for a jog. I was running. A fly flew into my mouth trying to kill me. That's what I realized. Exercising is risky. You know, researchers have done studies, and this is what they found. That one out of every one person will die.
0: Now, if you really believe that, then why aren't you preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling people to repent and be forgiven of their sins, sir? Why are you preaching yourself rather than Christ?
5: Life is terminal. All of us will find an end. 100% of people will die. And yet, we try to avoid risk. It's inevitable, but yet we try to avoid risk. I don't know where we got this thought that what we're supposed to do is to, in this, the purpose of life is to arrive at death safely. That is not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to fulfill the things in which God has called us to. To be a people who have dreams and live them out. That's... Is what life is. Do you got a verse that says that?
0: Because you're preaching yourself, not Christ and him crucified for our sins.
5: Life is about, but because life is risky, we avoid it. We shriek back. There's these people called the Israelites. On your outline, you can see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. We'll learn about the Israelites who were once enslaved. There were people that were enslaved by Egypt, and God had called them to a promised land. And so as they, they went through the wilderness, they walked through the wilderness, and they got to this place called Jericho. And this is what happened. Look what it says, Hebrews 11.30 says, It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and the walls came crashing down. Let me. No,
0: <clears throat> it was by what? It was by faith. Faith is trust. In other words, faith always has an object. What was the object of their faith? Was it their dreams? Or was it their God?
5: Unfold the story a little bit. If you have your Bibles, you can grab that. And if you would turn to the book of Joshua, it's right after the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua, chapter 6, tells us a little bit more about this story. These people who God had called to a promised land were in the wilderness for 40 years. And when they got to this place where God had called them to, they see this giant wall. This wall that was preventing them to the promises that God's called them to. This wall that was preventing them from achieving the dream that God had given them. This wall.
0: What are you talking about?
5: I mean, have you ever
0: read this story in context? It's not like, you know, the children of Israel were out wandering in the wilderness and all of a sudden, boom, there's a wall. Oh, no, this wall is going to keep us from achieving our dreams. Who <laughs> is going to save us from this wall? <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, when you read Joshua, you understand that God is finally bringing the children of Israel who he brought out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He sprung them. He set them free from slavery to the Egyptians. There was a whole bunch of them that still didn't have faith and trust in God, and they all died out there in the wilderness. And finally, 40 years later, after the uh, group of people who came out of Egypt who didn't have faith in God, who didn't believe him, died off. Now, finally, they're going to be brought into the land of Israel, into the promised land and god is telling them all right you're going to you're going to you're going to destroy all of these peoples these pagans that are in these lands and you know you are to utterly destroy them so when we get you know we they cross the jordan they get into the promised land and we read now jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of israel none went out none came in And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. Who who gave him Jericho? What was the purpose of it? Uh Uh-huh. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, "'Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord.' And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, "'Shout, for the Lord has given you the city!' And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things that are devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, Uh, devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and the gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they captured the city then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women young and old oxen sheep donkeys with the edge of the sword but the two but to the two men who had spied out the land Joshua said go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now I want to point something out to you. It's not mentioned in this chapter, it's mentioned in a previous chapter in Joshua. This prostitute, Rahab, she did house and hide the spies of, of the of Israel in her home and made it so they were able to spy out Jericho and then return safely and Rahab the prostitute was told that she would survive if she hung a scarlet scarf you know a scarlet thing outside of the window of her of her home and her home was actually built into the walls of Jericho that scarlet thread that scarlet cord that scarlet scarf that she hung outside of her wall looks so much and reminds us and points us back to the Passover, where the children of Israel, on the day when God sent the destroyer into Egypt to kill the firstborn of every home in Egypt, only those that, whose homes were covered in the blood of the Passover lamb, the, the, the lentils of the door, the blood was splattered over the door. Only when the destroyer angels saw that blood were they saved. That scarlet cord points us to the Passover lamb, and that Passover lamb points us to Christ. And I want you to know this. Rahab the prostitute is one of the direct descendants of King David. So here in this story, not only do we hear, not only do we hear of Israel taking Jericho, we are able to pick up in no uncertain terms where Christ is right now in the story. Christ, our great God and Savior, his relative, Rahab the prostitute, has just been saved from destruction. And she becomes the great, great, great grandmother of King David, the man after God's own heart, the shepherd king whom Jesus is patterned after. And here in Joshua 6, we can locate Christ and the crimson cord of the blood of Christ that runs through these stories and points us to our great God and Savior so that in Joshua chapter 6, you can preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. It's right there. And how God himself, And Jesus' blood in particular saves sinners, even sinners like Rahab the prostitute, who is grafted into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Do we preach ourselves, or do we preach Christ when we preach the Word? Pastor Billy seems to be off on a tangent, and he's completely missed Christ in this passage.
5: And so what did God say? He says, I have given you this wall. Look, at this is what you need to do. Look at chapter 6, starting with verse 2. It says, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its kings, and all of its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. And on the seventh day, you were to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the horn, the priests give one long blast of the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can, then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Think about it. God, you've called me to this promised land and now I'm faced with a wall and what do you want me to do walk
0: i'm sorry the story of joshua isn't about you sir god has not called you to a promised land called your dream and then put obstacles like the walls of jericho up so that you can't achieve your dream this miracle isn't your miracle not in that way
5: um, God, don't, I mean, I mean, not to like question you or anything, but don't you think we should show up there with like battering rams? I mean, don't you think that we should show up with catapults? Don't you think we should show up with a fight? He said, No, I want you to show up with armed with nothing more than your obedience to me.
0: And so they did. Uh, sorry, no, they weren't armed with their obedience, they were armed with faith. Don't you remember you were pointing people to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. What, what was it? Verse 30 that you were pointing people to? Yeah, let me remind you again of you know, which, where you thought you were at at this point. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. It wasn't obedience, it was faith
5: that caused them to act in obedience. They began to march around this town, they marched and they marched. And they marched for six days. Seventh day, they marched around seven times. They heard the the trumpet blast. Look what happens in verse 20. And when the people heard the sound of the ram's horn, they shouted as loud as they could. And then suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. How? How could they do that? How could these people who've walked through the wilderness for 40 years when they get to a wall, walk around it? Don't they realize that these walls, Jericho was the most fortified city in the world. It was the oldest city in the world, most secure city in the world. They had these giant walls and on these walls, they had warriors watching over the walls. And easily they could have done something, they could have dropped an arrow or dropped a rock or something. But yet God, you called us to march. So how could they do it? What is it that they had? Take your Bible and turn back a few chapters. Go back to the first chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, we realize that Moses had passed away and Joshua was called by God to lead these people. And look what it says. Joshua chapter 1 verse 6. It says be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess the land I have sworn to their ancestors. I would give to them, verse 7, be strong and very courageous. If we are going to be a people who achieve our dreams, if we are going to be a people who are led by God, and if we're going to be
0: people who achieve our dreams, apparently all of this stuff written in the book of Joshua is to give you an example of how you too can achieve your dreams just the same way the people of, of Israel did when they were coming out of the, out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Talk about adventures and missing the point.
5: We see this wall in front of us. We're going to have to be people of courage. You know, we've heard it before. What is courage? You know, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's acting in the face of it. You know, the people say that without fear, there could be no courage. But what is the truth? What is the truth about courage? Look at the back of your outline. The truth about courage is this. A single act of courage is the tipping point to an extraordinary outcome. A single act of courage is the tipping point to an extraordinary outcome. Man. My daughter, Allie, has been, has been hanging out with...
0: Here we go. Even more preaching of themselves rather than Christ.
5: Some new friends. You know, as a parent, when your, your children start hanging out with new friends, you want to know who these new friends are. You know, and so they've been coming over the house, and uh, they've been hanging out, and I've been getting to know them, and and they're they're good kids, you know. But there's this one person she kept talking about. She kept going, well, Dad, um, Adam Roth, he, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, Adam Roth leads worship at his church. You know, Dad, Adam, and I'm beginning to believe that my daughter likes this Adam Roth. So, you know, what's going on here? Well, two weeks ago, I get a text from... Adam Roth. And this is what the text said. Hey, Billy. (laughs) Hey, I was wondering if there might be a time where we can meet up. And I, I said, Yeah, sure, that's fine. About you know, Monday, three o'clock, we'll meet at Starbucks, whatever, you know, we figured it out and yeah, we figured out we're gonna meet at Starbucks. So I show up at Starbucks and we're sitting down and I'm here, Adam Roth is there, and we're and he's like <laughs> he's like, So what's up? Well, not much. How you doing? I'm good, Adam, how are you? He's like, You know, I just wanna I just wanna get to know you more, you know. I'm like, Adam, what, what's going on? What, what why are we here? What? And he's like, well, um, I, 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 asked, I just wanted to ask I asked you to come here because I'm thinking about, um, having, you know, being in a relationship with your daughter and I wanted to ask your permission. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore, folks. I mean, I love this kid. He's here today. He's dying right now. Um, I asked his permission. It's kind of a, you know, swapped in a relationship, permission for permission. But yeah, I'm like, well, this is why I asked him. I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean relationship? He's like, I knew you were going to ask that. He's like, well, I just want to, you know, I want to get to know her. I, I feel like if, if I'm going to be in a relationship with somebody and, and someday possibly marry them uh, and be with them forever, I want to, I want to get to know them. Marriage, I hate you. But I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's cool. You have my permission. He says, Well, here, I just have a couple of, a couple of questions. Um, you know, do you have any expectations of, of, a, of a guy that dates your daughter? Who asks that? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I went through a list of expectations. This, this is the question that killed me. This is what he says He says, Do you have any boundaries that you'd like me to respect? Distance, Adam. <laughs> Much distance, physically. No. <laughs> Here's what happened. That one single act of courage was the tipping point for me falling in love with this kid. It's that one single thing that you think, how am I gonna I but you know what? I think we underestimate that single act of courage. We underestimate think, what's that gonna do? What, what's that going to do? What's, what what's going to happen? What's going to change? How will that change if I do this one thing? Nothing's going to be any different afterwards. What's the big deal? And we avoid and we streak away from that one single act of courage when all along God's waiting and saying, do it. Look what he said to the Israelites. Joshua 6.2. This was before they even walked around the wall. He said, but the Lord said to Joshua, what did he say? I have given you Jericho. I've given it to you. It's already yours. Go and possess it. Step out in courage. Take that one single step. That one step could be the, the one thing that knocks it all the way over. But we
0: Yeah, again, this isn't about some vision or dream that God supposedly is supposed to be giving you. This is about the story of the Savior. This story is about Jesus.
5: We think, you know what, that's, I don't like the way that's going to I don't think, God, I don't like the way you did that. I don't like walking. If I was there, I'd be like, really, God, walk? Don't we do enough walking around? Don't we do enough yelling and all that? What are you talking about? But see, what we do is we get cynical and we we start questioning the method. And as soon as we start questioning the method, we start questioning the messenger. We've got to realize God said, walk. So I'm going to walk. I'm going to keep walking until I see this thing come. Walk in what area? Walk where? Walk how? Next point there says this. Courage is moving forward when you usually say, I just couldn't. Courage is moving forward when you would usually say, I just couldn't. Fear grips us. Fear gets a hold of us. and so we say things like, I just couldn't. I just don't know. I'm just unsure. I, I just might be unprepared. I just don't know. It grips us and holds on to us. About 15 years ago, my wife and, and I, we, we had two kids, and we decided she was going to stay home with the kids. And so when she was home with the kids, you know, she, my mom would come over and visit, and they decided to go to the mall, and they're at the mall, and um, they're walking around. Let
0: me read uh, 2 Corinthians 4 again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Who's he preaching
5: again? Christ or himself. When they see an old friend of hers from high school, in high school, Annie, uh, my wife, she was an architect. She took architecture classes and drafting and, and she won some awards for architecture. And uh, it was like a given. She was going to be an architect. And this guy knew it. I mean, this guy was like, so when they saw each other, they met up in the mall, they saw each other They're like, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. He asked, so are you an architect? She said, no, I'm not. But you, you were so good at it. You won awards, man. You were so good. She said, well, um, I tried. I went to college, but I couldn't pass the math. I could make it look right. I could give all the right perspectives and make it look, but I couldn't show the, the work. I couldn't do the math. And so uh, I just didn't do it. He's like, but you, you were so talented. I mean, what are you doing with that gift? Nothing. You're, but you were, you were so creative. I mean, you did such great things. Don't you think you should? What, what, I mean, you should do something with that. Because, well, you know, I would, I would love to paint wall murals. That's what I'd love to do. I mean, I've seen people paint wall murals. And I look at it and I think, man, I would love to do that. I would love to be a part of that. He goes, you know what? Hey, my wife is pregnant. We're having a baby. And uh, would would you take the stuff on the baby blanket and kind of like put it up on the wall and make it kind of match and stuff? She goes, I'd love to. That'd be great. He goes, here, here's my wife's number. Gave her the number and said, call her, you know, set up a time with her. She's like, okay. Oh, finally, a good story
0: where somebody is saved saved from not being able to be an architect. So now they can paint murals. They have a new dream, a new vision. Salvation
5: has finally come to this poor girl. And my mom and her, they're walking away going, wow, how crazy is God? You know, it's like, what in the world is going on here? And so she gets home and my mom's like, make sure you call. She said, okay, I'll call. Three days go by. My mom calls her. Did you call? No what do you mean you didn't call? You need to call. She goes, I don't know. I just don't know. I can't do that. I, I don't know anything about the business. I don't know all that. I just, I just don't think I can. My mom goes, you call. Call them up. She goes, okay, I will. Three days go by. Did you call them? No, I didn't call them. And you got to call them because I don't know. I, I, all right, I'll, I'll try to do it. I, I'll see what happens. Two weeks go by. My mom, Stops by and says, Annie, did you call that lady? She goes, no, I, I didn't. I'm just, it's just too much. I don't, I can't. She goes, you're calling or I'm calling. You call them up. She goes, okay, I, I will. And that day she called him up. She said, you know, I, you know, I talked to Michael about, about doing a mural. She goes, oh, I've been waiting for your call. Come by, I want to show it to you. She went in, showed it. That was the first day in 14 years of working in the things that she absolutely loves to do. That one act, yes, absolutely. You can give God all the glory on that one.
0: Serious, yeah, wow. Praise God.
5: She absolutely loves being creative. She absolutely loves painting. She absolutely loves doing those kinds of things. But I wonder what would have happened if she just said, you know, I just, I just couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that. I just don't know if that is something that I can do. You know, these Israelites are standing before this giant wall and they could be looking at it going, God, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. I just couldn't do that. Walk around all this. I, I just don't think I could do that. I don't, know, I don't even know what's on the other side of this wall. You want me to go in? I don't even know what's on the other side. Did you know the African Impala? The African Impala can jump 30 feet out and 10 feet high. For the size of creature it is, that's an amazing achievement. But they found a way that they can contain it. They realized if they put it around a three-foot-high wall, that I would hold it back. Because the African Impala will not jump to a place where it won't see its feet landing. If it can't see where it's going to land, it's not going to jump. Doesn't that sound like us? I mean, we think, okay, God, I don't know. If, If I knew that on the other side of this wall there was security. If I knew on the other side of the wall you were there. If I knew on the other side of the wall, then maybe I could. But since I don't know, I just couldn't. Just couldn't. You know, we so many times focus right on the wall. We think, wow, this wall. I mean, when you focus on the wall, all you're going to see is the wall. When you focus on your circumstances and your problems, all you're going to see is your problems and your circumstances. God says,
0: oh, man, I'm I'm just crawling out of my
5: skin. Don't focus on the wall. No, God never said anywhere, don't focus on the wall. What are you talking about? Focus on your walk. I told you to walk. Walk it out. Keep walking. Keep going. Follow through with what I told you. God, I don't understand how this is going to work. What is this going to do? I don't understand. I just I can't keep keep walking. You know why? Because in the end, last point, in the end, this chapter of your life will be nothing more than a story you tell.
0: Oh, good night. Okay, yeah, wow, it's all about me telling the world my story.
5: Good night. When this chapter of your life is over, this chapter of your life will be nothing more than a story that you tell. My grandma Phipps. She is now with Jesus and uh, she's no longer with us. But man, did she tell stories. She told us so many stories and, you know, so many times I wish I would have written them down or had somebody record them for me. But I, it was, I wish that I had these stories. But there's one story she told over and over and over again. She told me a story. She said, your great grandparents, her parents, your great grandparents lived in Russia. And in the time that they lived in Russia, there were these people called the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks were coming in and they were trying to change the government to become a communist nation. And they were telling people, they were going into churches and stopping services. They were taking people's Bibles away from them. They left them with one Bible.
0: And one Do you think the reason why the Bolsheviks took people's Bibles away from them is so that they wouldn't achieve their dreams
5: One Bible was chained to a podium in the center of the town square. And it was the only Bible that they could read. They were thinking, man, if we could just have freedom from this. Your great-grandparents said, you know, I've heard of this place called America. I heard that they they have freedom there to worship God the way that they want to. And the Bolsheviks would come in and say, listen, if you think you're going to go to America and avoid all this, let me tell you something. Americans are worse than us. If you're caught with a Bible in America, people, they will kill you. So fear gripped their hearts. But the town that they were in kept saying, we believe that there's this place that we can go and have freedom. Who will go? See, it was their God-given dream. Who could we send? And my great-grandparents said, we'll go we'll go. And so they decided, okay, we're going to pick up what we know, what we own, and we're going to pack it up and we're going to America. And so as they were preparing to go to America, the people of the town went to the town square, broke the chains of that Bible and gave it to my grandparents and said, have this with you just in case you get there. And there are no Bibles and there is no freedom. At least you will still have God's word. And they were so scared.
0: They were, yeah, that way they could, you know, they could look in God's word and figure out what their dreams are and, and what it takes in order to achieve them.
5: They were thinking if they, were, if they find us with the Bible, they may kill us. So they took that Bible and they baked it in bread and took this bread with them onto the ship, not knowing where they were going, not knowing what they were doing, onto a ship. And they landed in New York. And as they were coming off the ship, and they're holding on to their bread, their word of God, what might have been their food. My grandma's got all kinds of angles on that story, let me tell you. And so she's talking about this bread, and they're walking off of the ship, and as they walk off, somebody walks up to them speaking in Russian. Are you guys Russian? And they said, yes, we are. He said, God told me that there would be somebody here today that is Russian, and then I'm supposed to give you a place to live. Come stay with me in my house. And they stayed for months with these people. Isn't that an amazing story? Months. They stayed with these people for months until they got on their feet. Now I can imagine why did my. <clears>
0: 2 <throat> Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. Who's he preaching about
5: again? My grandma tell me that story all the time. Because it's a celebration of confidence. A confidence in God that says, I can do this. I'm going to step out in courage. It could have been different. My grandmother could have looked at me when we were young and say, you know, grandson, let me tell you a story. Your grandparents were called to America, but they were scared and they didn't go. That's why you still live in Russia. I could imagine how Joshua could be sitting in an old rocking chair with his grandkids around him and him saying, listen, grandkids, God called me after Moses passed away. God called me to lead the people of Israel to the promised land. And we went and we saw this giant wall, but the wall was too big. So that's why we live on this side. See, these stories that we tell, they're, only, they're probably, they could be a, a complaint of cowardice, or they could be a celebration of courage. What story do you want to tell? When this chapter of your life is closed and it's done, what story do you want to tell? Do you want to tell the story of how you stepped out in courage and achieved all the dreams that God has called you to? Or do you want to tell the story that I was just too scared? If you want to tell the story of courage, the only way to tell that story is to have courage. And courage means you're going to have to walk through the fire. It means you're going to have to go through the wall. It means you're going to have to keep walking. Even when you don't understand, you're going to have the courage to continue. No matter what is on the other side of the wall, the courage to continue. Today. The final day, the last day of this series, Louder Than Words, my prayer for you is this, that you will not leave this room unless you stand up and say, I'm going to have courage, I'm going to be strong, and I'm going to fulfill the dreams that God has called me to. I'm going to have courage. I'm not going to be a coward anymore. I'm going to step out. Not Even if I don't know what's out there, I'm going to step out. That's my dream for you today. Do
0: you need a crucified and risen Savior for this or just a good motivational speaker? I mean, I've heard Anthony Robbins give similar speeches.
5: Today, that's my prayer for you today. And maybe for some of you today, maybe for some of you today, that one single act is going to be the tipping point is you closing the gap. The gap between you and your creator. Somewhere along the way, you and God got messed up. Somewhere along the way, you and your relationship with God got off course. Somewhere along the way, maybe you just haven't even given your life over to God. I pray today that this would be the moment. This would be the act, the single act of courage that would tip your life into the area of God and all the dreams that he has for you. My prayer for you today is that you would close the gap between you and God. Would you stand up with me as we pray?
0: You close the gap between you and God. Christless, crossless, narcissistic. I I mean, the, the words just can go on. Absolutely presumptuous. Is this not exactly what Satan did in his temptation of Jesus when he took him to the top of the temple and misquoted Psalm 91? To inflate the human ego? To make you think Christianity is all about you receiving a dream from God so that you
5: can fulfill? Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father. No, I'm not letting you pray for me.
0: (sighs) But we should pray for him. Lord, we pray for Pastor Billy. We ask that you would knock him off of his horse, destroy his pride and his self-righteousness and his arrogance in approaching your word that he would think that it's about him. We pray that you would bring him to repentance, crush his false teaching, and leave him as one who is truly poor in spirit, contrite and sorry and repentant, for the mischief and the false teaching that he's been preaching and dispensing. And then, Lord, lift him through your cross, fix his gaze upon you and your crucified body, broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. May he never preach about himself again, but only preach you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Pick one. Fill it out. We truly, truly could use your help. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.